0: This is Swordplay. Alex, a Christian-owned Indiana CrossFit gym, was shut down last week for canceling an LGBT
1: Pride event. What do you think about that? Well, Nick, I don't see what the big deal is. I love those sandwiches. Lettuce, bacon, guacamole, tomato. No, no, no. (laughs) That's that's a BLT. This is something different. No, no. That's the right letters. Lettuce, bacon, guacamole, tomato. All right. This is Swordplay. We are your
0: hosts. I am Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in
1: Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota
0: on this episode of Swordplay Titus chapter 3 and we do want to invite you if you've not yet done so just hit the pause button we'll be here when you get back read chapter 3 in its entirety read it again read the whole book of Titus if you want shouldn't take more than 15-20 minutes and then come back hit play and listen to what we have to say about this chapter that's
1: a good idea Nick what's our first question for today
0: well verse 1 talks about how Uh, Paul is reminding Titus to remind these Christians on Crete to be submissive to rulers and authorities. So how far does that submission go? Are we supposed
1: to be subject to evil rulers and authorities, Alex? You know, I think considering the historical context that Titus and Paul lived in, the current rulers and authorities in general were pretty evil. Um, The Roman government government and those in power in the Roman government were no shining examples of civil service. So I would say, yeah, even with evil rulers, um, you need to be submission and in subjection. But that does not mean you have to agree with what they stand for, that you have to endorse what they endorse. You don't have to enjoy the laws that they create. Uh, You don't have to enjoy the rulers that are put in place. I think the thrust lies in the spreading of the gospel through a non-aggressive path. Uh, We don't spread the gospel by Violently toppling over the governments uh, or, or violently creating regime change, we're supposed to win the hearts and minds of men through persuasion, through the preaching of the gospel, not by force. So I wonder if that's where the thrust lies here. What do you think, Nick?
0: No, I think that's right on the money, um, especially, you know, we started the program off with the uh, the Indiana CrossFit gym being shut down. Uh, there was a case last week that was decided in the Supreme Court about a Christian baker who didn't want to make bake a cake for a gay couple. Um, the government condones things that Christians often don't uh, condone, shouldn't condone um, because of what Scripture says. And so when the laws and when the policies of a government... Go against the will of God. We follow the lead of the apostolic college, and we obey God rather than men, as they say in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. That's right. And um, how that looks is going to be different based on how an individual discerns the
1: situation, but yeah, we obey God rather than men. No, I like that, Nick, and that may even come at a cost, perhaps loss of a business, uh, jail time. Even death. At certain times in church history, it meant that you laid down your life. For sure. That's uh, the Christian's commitment. Uh, We don't live by the sword. Jesus said, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. We live by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Well, Nick, uh, what else do we have on our list today?
0: Verse 2, he talks about, uh, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, or be peaceable, your translation may say. Um be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. And especially regarding that gentle part there. Can we be gentle
1: without being naive? Yeah. What do you think about that, Nick? I mean, if if I'm a gentle Christian, does that mean I'm a doormat and I let people manipulate me? What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about our recent
0: conversations with Jimmy Hinton and he talked a lot about wolves. How do we show perfect courtesy toward wolves in sheep's clothing? I mean, right. um, yeah, just when it, when it comes to known wolves and how we deal with them, not everyone's a wolf. I understand that. And so sure. I think more often than not, we're quick to jump the gun and be short and curt and rude with people when we are called to be courteous and uh, kind toward people. But when it comes to a known wolf,
1: yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one. What do you think? No, I think you're right, Nick. Jesus said to be innocent as doves and yet wise as serpents. And so I think you can be peaceable, you can be gentle, you can be considerate. That's the dove part. But we also have to be wise as serpents, which means uh we're not going to pretend that evil doesn't exist in the church. We're not going to put our heads in the sand and uh believe that everybody who looks like a sheep is an actual sheep. There are also wolves clothed in sheep's uh skin and have sheep's clothing. So you can do both. You can be peaceful and gentle while still being cautious and wise. I, I was thinking about Jimmy Hinton's interview as well. If we have a known um, pedophile on our hands, we can create safe boundaries, meaning that you can offer them an adult-only worship context. Uh, they can't be around children ever again. And that's not mean, and that's not rude, and that's not inconsiderate. It's actually the most considerate thing for both um, the known wolf and the rest of the sheep that we're supposed to protect. So that's that's what I think, Nick. Verse 3 says, Paul writes,
0: We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Woo! Whoa. Well, yeah. Is Paul saying that he was all those things, that he was deceived
1: as well as the rest? You know, it's an interesting thought to consider Paul throwing himself into the same lot as Cretans. I mean, he said Cretans are, it's just like your prophet said, you're, you're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So, yeah, I think I think Paul is throwing himself into the same boat as Cretans, but not because he's just like them in every way. I think it's because, you know, he loved the law, he kept the law, but he was deceived. He He was blinded to see the one whom the law was delivering him to for justification. So because Paul needed that same justification through Jesus as the Christ, uh, that means he is in the same place as the Cretans who need that same justification, even though he had the law and they did not have the law. So in a sense, everyone is deceived until they come to Christ Jesus. That's what I think. What do you think, Nick? I think that's right
0: on. The operative word here, well, the words are... Were once. That's a past tense verb with uh, with that word once indicating this is the past. And formerly, I I don't think Paul would just. Well, he's saying it right here. Uh, Paul and every other Christian was once in an unregenerate condition, and we were disobedient and slaves. And it's you know, it's um, uh, scalable based on degrees. Some were more given over to these things than others were but yeah I think I think he is throwing himself in there with the rest of them. So if that was the past let's talk about what happened that's verses 4 through six um, in a word it was redemption it was salvation um, what about the work here of the Trinity um, in redemption Alex you see any you see any uh, anything spectacular anything that stands out here about <laughs> the Trinity and
1: Redemption? Well, at first, I I didn't even see the Trinity until you pointed it out. But you're right. I mean, you have the kindness of God, our Savior. So in verse 4, it calls God our Savior as opposed to Jesus our Savior. Um, But Jesus is God. So you have these overlapping qualities. Um, He saved us by his mercy, the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit, which he poured upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he calls Jesus Christ our Savior. And God, our Savior, and He throws the Spirit in between. So, it seems like a overlapping of qualities: the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They're all considered Savior, full of kindness and love and mercy. Uh, you can see an agreement and a plan, in what they're going to do, how they're going to carry it out, why they're going to carry it out, and an overlapping in the work that uh, each one performs. I just think that the most interesting part to me, anyway, was that the Spirit seems to always play the unseen role. You got to see Jesus in the flesh, Uh, at least they did, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and it seems like the Father is the main character in the Old Testament, with the angel of the Lord appearing every now and then. But you got the Spirit working, and the Spirit is usually behind the scenes, and he's working through mediators, angelic mediators, human mediators. I don't know, I just thought that that was interesting, how you have this blurring of identities, and I think the blurring is intentional. What do you think, Nick?
0: Definitely here, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, When you dig into uh, systematic theology proper, uh, they do tend to delineate the various roles and functions that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit played, and so what ends up shaking out is you have the Father who is the designer of the plan and so he sends the son first and then with the son he'll send the spirit but the son comes and he's the the executor of the plan literally through his execution and then um the holy spirit is the finisher and he is sent to help us toward sanctification and uh also obviously here with regeneration and renewal which we're talking about in a minute but yeah, they they have these distinctive roles, and yet at the same time, they're in such perfect harmony and unity that sometimes you do get that blending um, of roles as well. Um, speaking of salvation, um, what is the basis of gaining salvation, uh, as it's explained here in verse five? Is there a basis for keeping and losing salvation?
1: I think those are good questions, Nick. Um, I mean, he says right off the bat, it was not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to mercy. And so uh, I just wanted to dig into this a little bit more. If you connect that mercy back to um, God, even that mercy is overlapping with other things. Like in chapter one, verse two, it says, uh, this hope of eternal life, this is something God promised long ages ago. So I would say that the basis of gaining salvation is God's mercy, but that mercy is based off of a promise. So God made a promise. So he created the avenue and the arena, which would be um, the the place freely open for all to enter and to thus gain salvation. And as we choose to freely enter that arena called salvation, we can freely choose to leave that arena. And so that may even be a connection to uh, Paul calling some of these guys self-condemned later on in the chapter Uh, reminds me of John chapter 3 verse 18 after he says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life Um, he goes on to say if you have not believed in him then you've already been judged he didn't come to judge the world but it makes it sound like you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life by not believing in the name of the only begotten son of God I'm going to give a a parallel here, okay? So on Sundays, we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, and I saw something last week as we were going through Deuteronomy chapter 9. Israel received the promised land because Yahweh went before them. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 3. And Yahweh wanted to make sure Israel knew it was not because of their righteousness, but it was because of the other nation's wickedness that needed to be judged. That's Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. And it was also because Yahweh made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. So the land was Israel's to keep or to lose once having received it, but the basis of receiving it was not their righteousness. It was the promise and Yahweh doing it for them. And even once they lost the land, God told them ahead of time how they could repent and get the land back that's outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verses 25 through 31 and chapter 6 verses 1 through 3. And those are the passages where you're going to see how God says he doesn't forget people and he's full of loving kindness and compassion and mercy. So here's what I'm saying, Nick. I'm not saying that once Israel got the promised land that that meant God was absent. His job was done and uh, the people are just on their own to, to be righteous and to grow and to learn and to and to be close to God. No, I think it's quite the opposite. This passage in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and chapter 8, it implies the need of an even closer relationship so that they don't forget their God and the things that he did for them in the past, that they don't become self-entitled and self-righteous. So I believe the same line of reasoning can be applied to the Christian concerning salvation today. The Christian freely receives salvation by faith, But we also continue to live by faith. And living by faith involves uh, growing in purity uh, and also by doing these good deeds, bearing fruit in the good deeds that we do for one another. So I would say the basis of gaining salvation, God's promise, the work he did in Christ, uh, given to us freely. But what's the basis for keeping or losing that salvation? It's our response to the gospel. It's how we live the rest of our lives, which is why I think you can, you can lose your salvation. What do you think, Nick?
0: I feel like doing the slow clap standing ovation that the Politburo does in Rocky Four right now <laughs> after that answer. Um, I'm reminded of Romans 11 where Paul's talking about this, this tree that has Jewish roots, but then there have been these wild olive shoots that have been grafted in And um, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles being part of the, the same body, which is the church. And in verse 20 of Romans 11, he says, talking about branches that were broken off, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. Yeah. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you and and as just you were talking that was the verse that came to mind about our what our response should be to this that god uh he has saved us according to his own mercy and so the basis for salvation god's mercy um and i don't disagree with the promise bit either that you um have put forward here so eloquently um I just want to toss this bit in here as well about God's mercy being the basis for salvation. And it's his continued mercy which enables us uh to remain in his salvation. Uh the the continued mercy. And he's going to talk about in verse seven about being justified by his grace as well. Yeah, mercy and grace. Once again, these twin characteristics showing up in a very close span here, um, literally just sentences apart. So
1: yeah, I think it's um, easy to swing the pendulum too far one way or the other. You're going to have God there doing his work. He expects us to respond and to listen and believe him. Uh, that requires action on our part. And so you're never going to have w- just one or the other. It's always going to be both. And um, you you could even, well, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're in verse 5, that's going
0: to bring us to our tough text for the day. What is the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to go ahead and just take a crack at this. Yeah, you go for it. Right off the bat here, um, what I found was, first, the word washing. It's defined as a ceremonial washing referring to baptism. That's what... One of the best uh, Greek lexicons has to say about it. Um, In fact, one commentator said of the word that it was used as if to show that the reference is to baptism. It's fascinating to read these commentaries talking about this particular verse, because just about every last one of them mentions baptism and, and connects this washing with baptism Um, As you look at the history of interpretation for this particular verse, Augustine spoke of it. He spoke of having been washed in the laver of regeneration, that's the word that's used here, um, and have received the forgiveness of sins. He writes about that in City of God. Uh, In his work against uh, Faust, he links the hope of salvation, which is so sure that it can be referred to as salvation, he links that with the washing of regeneration. Uh, another early church writer, Chrysostom, he has no issues identifying the washer, uh, the washing with uh, washing of regeneration with baptism in his uh, work on cata, uh, Instructions to Catechumens. Cyprian in Epistle 73 verse 6 likewise calls it baptism. It's just all of these show the most natural way of understanding the washing here. And even washing of regeneration, understanding that phrase is baptism. Grammatically, this is a single event. It's not through the washing of regeneration and through renewal of the Holy Spirit, it's just through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's all pointing to a single event. Um, not just a washing and then a renewal, but this single event by which the Holy Spirit regenerates or rebirths uh, and that's renews. Yeah. Most commentators, most theologians, they see here a parallel to Ephesians 5, verse 26, the washing of water with the Word. They see it as baptism. They see it as immersion. But they're quick to say, yeah, but it doesn't have to do with salvation. <laughs> um <laughs> Paul, though, unlike contemporary theologians, he had no issue with connecting it with salvation. God saved us, he says, according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, through this new birth and this renewing which the Holy Spirit does. Of course, this lends itself to a discussion about baptismal regeneration. And typically, that is associated with works salvation, something that is condemned in this very text. He says it's not of works done by us in righteousness. But we believe that it's not us doing the work when we're baptized. We believe it's God who does the work. You can see Colossians 2, I think it's verse 12, he talks about how it's the powerful working of God. And here, we believe it's the Holy Spirit who rebirths us and renews us. And he does that in the event... Of our baptism, when we are immersed in water um, and have all of our sins washed away by the blood of Christ, that's when the Holy Spirit is working. Whew. So wow. that's a very brief overview of <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> very brief overview of that. What what do you have to say about it, Alex? Uh, Nick, I thought that was really well said. Boy, you did. You just got it summarized to the points, and you you nailed it. So, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, if somebody gives you a birthday present, um, and you open it up, you don't then say, I earned this present because I opened it. <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. That's right. You know, ba- baptism is the going to receive our gift of salvation. Um, now, Nick, I know that when you quote the apostolic fathers and the early church fathers and their writings and how the early church understood baptism and the reading, which seems natural, both contextually and grammatically from the original language, as you pointed out in all these verses. Um, some people will be quick to say that that is true, but it has nothing to do with water baptism. That's all just something that happens spiritual, um, in the spiritual realm and you don't see it And then people go different trails from there. You don't see it, but you'll know you'll have it because you'll speak in tongues. Or you'll know you'll have it because that's when you really start believing in Christ. Um, So all of that spiritual stuff precedes the uh, physical sign, which you would do to show you've been saved. So that's the typical response. And a lot of times people will connect Titus chapter 3 with John chapter 3. So in John chapter 3, there's... the the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus and he starts telling Nicodemus that uh, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again and it has to be of water and the spirit and uh, there's this verse in in chapter 3 verse 8 that says the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going so is everyone who is born of the spirit so people will look at that and say, see, the Spirit just does it, you don't know it, you don't see it, and he goes around washing and regenerating people. I would contend with that and say, listen, um, a closer examination of this conversation and and contextually in chapter 3, you can link the idea of being born again of water and Spirit and John's baptism, that is John the Baptist, the forerunner to Christ, Because chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, is this conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. But verse 22 through 36 is about John the Baptist. It's his last speech that he's going to give before being arrested and executed. So why would John the Apostle put these two passages next to each other without some sort of conceptual link? And I think there is a conceptual link because John's baptism, John the Baptist, it was... For the forgiveness of sins and nicodemus had likely not yet gone out to be immersed by john meaning that nicodemus needed to be born again he needed his sins Mm. washed away and so i think jesus is telling him you need to be born again because you have not yet gone out to the prophet john the baptist and so the mysteriousness of the spirit blowing around in verse 8 You can understand it through John's speech in verse 34. Verse 34, John the Baptist says, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. There's a connection between the Spirit and the words of God. The words of God are brought about by the Spirit. So you can conceptually link this as the Spirit using the Word of God, the Word of God searching for a receptive heart, and the receptive heart at that time received John's baptism because John spoke the words of God, and those who received John's words were baptized. And so that's the same pattern, the same scenario that you see with the baptism uh, of Jesus on the day of Pentecost and onward to the church today. It's the same scenario, except you're, you're not talking about Nicodemus needing to be baptized into the church uh, into Christ, because that doesn't start until Pentecost. This is actually about Nicodemus needing to be baptized as a reborn Israelite, which was what John the Baptist was calling Israel to do. So that that's my answer for that, that we're, we're still not talking about something that the Spirit does only spiritually and has nothing to do with water. I think that goes against the the context of the entire chapter of John chapter 3, so I don't know. I don't know if I explained that well enough in a short amount of time. But uh, what are your thoughts, Nick?
0: No, I think that's right on the money. Um, not only with the given context in John three or the given context even in Titus chapter three, but everything we see in the New Testament is pointing toward baptism as the event, kind of the culmination of having heard the gospel and believing that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, that he's the sent one from God who has died for our sins. Um, uh, having repented of our sins, we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And again, all this kind of culminates in being immersed. And by the way, you know, I, uh, um, for the first, I think it's 1,500 years, the first 1,500 years of church history, that was pretty well uniform. That was a standard understanding of what baptism did. Yeah, you ended up with some people that sprinkled or poured water or whatever. But it wasn't until Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, over in uh, Der Switzerland, when he allegorizes water, right. turns it into this figure, this metaphor. Um, And and that's when things really get off the rails, and why you end up with where we are today, where you have contemporary theologians saying, okay, yeah, it's talking about baptism, but, you know, there's no connection between baptism and salvation. (laughs)
1: 1 Peter 3.21! (laughs) Right? So... Yeah, you know, it's funny, because the the dispensationalist uh, rails against the allegorizing of Scripture all day long because of their eschatological take on... um, taking revelation literally at every single point in turn and all prophecy for that matter and yet your average dispensationalist will allegorize the water for with the Holy Spirit and baptism so that yep. it's not connected to a salvation that's it's, it's ironic and it's a it's a slightly hypocritical speaking
0: of the Holy Spirit verse 6 um he said, uh, "Paul says that he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So when did God do that? When did God pour out the Holy Spirit? Did He do it more than once? Is this talking about just the Holy Spirit being poured out on an individual believer, or is it a uh, to be understood as a collective thing for the whole body,
1: Alex? Oh man, I kind of just want to say all of the above because if, <laughs> <laughs> if the each parts of that answer fits within different contexts. So I I understand the pouring out to be uh, maybe two main ways. So first, you have the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which I think happened in two parts. Part one was on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and that was to usher in the salvation of the Jews. But then part two of that pouring out happened at Cornelius's house in Acts chapter 10, and I think that was to usher in salvation for the Gentile. And so that's path one of the pouring out of the Spirit, where it happens in uh, Acts 2 and Acts 10. And then I think that's done. It's the, the Spirit's poured out. And since the Spirit is poured out, here's the second sense in which we can understand the Spirit being poured out upon us. The Spirit, thus having been poured out, remains available to Jew or Gentile, uh, through Christ Jesus, so that at baptism, we can receive his renewal, regeneration. So it's difficult to separate the the Spirit as in, okay, he's been poured out, um, but is that upon us individually, or is that upon us as a collective body? It, it can go both ways, it overlaps, it's difficult to completely separate it, just like it is with the Spirit living in you. So the Spirit indwells you as a congregation as the collective body of christ but you got some passages where it really sounds like the spirit lives in you individually as well the ideas overlap and so it is with the pouring out of the holy spirit there are overlapping ideas uh what say you nick
0: well that little plural pronoun us really he poured out on us right. really and i think it highlights the the collective nature to this it's a body thing in other words like you were saying um, but it could just be Paul kind of using the the collective we to to speak of how each member, also as you talked about um has undergone baptism and thereby has received the Holy Spirit. each of us has experienced the outpouring of god 's holy spirit in that way right. so yeah you're you're right i think it's um,
1: uh d all the above, right? <laughs> I think that's that's what it boils down to. So now, Nick, once we've received the re- renewing regeneration of the Spirit at baptism, it says we become justified by His grace, so that we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, what are your thoughts on this idea of us becoming heirs? What do you think is involved in the the being an heir? What are we heirs of? I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah. Um, so it's. Not just eternal life, um, right? I mean, it's um, it's the hope of eternal. We become heirs of hope uh, of eternal life. And hope not as not as in we typically understand it as, gee, I sure hope this happens, whatever it is. Hope, as it's understood biblically, is the confident expectation that God will give to us exactly what He promised. Um, so long as we continue to remain faithful to him that's that 's the the biblical concept of hope. Um, does that make sense?
1: yeah, Nick, I agree with that and i I would like to take what you said and expand it i 'd like to run with it a little bit more, and I might be you know standing on speculative ground, but i 'm going to throw it out there for the for the listener to consider so in this verse in my translation anyway, it says we 've been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the hope of eternal life is not what we're heirs of uh, only, but according to that hope of eternal life, we become heirs. And I'm wondering, what's that heir of? Well, in chapter 2, verse 13, we talked about how the blessed hope that the Christian has is the resurrection. So I think the resurrection is tied in with this as well. And I would say that it's not just the hope of eternal life which is said to be the basis of our becoming heirs in this verse but as a resurrected person as a resurrected people with eternal life you know this is what we're looking forward to this is what we're going to receive we will become heirs of the nations so in revelation chapter 2 verse 26 and 27 a promise that's given there to those who overcome is that um He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. He's quoting Psalm chapter 2, which is the the Messiah, Messianic Psalm. But then Jesus, the Messiah, comes along and he says, You're going to be heirs of those nations with me if you overcome. I think this goes back to Romans chapter four verses thirteen and following about the promise to Abraham's seed being the heirs uh, of the of the cosmos of, of the world. And then in chapter eight verses sixteen through nineteen, this is interesting to think about. I'm going to read this one as well. So Romans chapter eight verses sixteen through nineteen says, "The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, heirs also." heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So as sons of God, we're heirs. And when all of this wraps up, when Jesus comes back, it will be revealed who those sons of God and heirs are, and um, yeah, I think I think we're going to inherit rulership of the world. And so, I guess in that sense, I'm not a dispensationalist, but I maybe do have a more premillennial look on uh, the return of Christ. But uh, you know, eschatology is another lesson for another time. So, <laughs>
0: well, I don't. You did not... mention the the promise of God, and that goes back to one verse two, where He talks about the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies, promised before the ages began. If God makes a promise, that's something you can take to the bank every day of the week and twice on Sunday. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's, uh,
1: that's very good stuff. Um, I just want to add one little part. Um, part of this has begun already. We've been hmm. seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, um, but that is going to culminate in the ages to come, which is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So it's the already but not yet. We've already been seated with Christ, given his authority, but it has not culminated yet. It's still unfolding. So that's that's the last little tidbit I wanted to throw in there.
0: So verse 8, Paul tells Titus that I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. How was Titus lacking in confidence? You think because Paul has to tell him you need to insist on these things, and how does insisting on these things lead to good works?
1: Yeah, I think in my translation um, it says I want you to speak confidently about these mm. things, as opposed to insisting on these things. I think it's the same idea, and perhaps there was a lack of confidence. Um, what what did Paul tell Timothy in First Timothy four twelve? I think it was. Do you remember? That's
0: not to take a little wine for your stomach passage, is it?
1: <laughs> I think this uh, is the uh don't let anyone look down on your on your youth passage. Or maybe that's the uh
0: Yeah, but set the believers an example. Yeah,
1: okay. That's the one. <laughs> and then Second <laughs> Timothy one seven with the um the timidity one first I can't remember. What's that say? Uh we don't we we
0: have not received a spirit of timidity, but one of Uh, Power, uh, love, and self-control. There it is. There it is.
1: I couldn't remember the second part. Yeah, so we kind of think Timothy may have lacked confidence. Maybe Titus also did. It's possible. I'm not sure if that's the point here. Uh, The point may just be that there is an emphasis that Paul wants Titus to put on these things. And what's these things? I think these things are the, the things that he talked about concerning us being made errors. So... Here's what I think. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step on the ground of speculation again, so just bear with me. Maybe it'll be funny. Maybe it'll make you think. But uh, <laughs> as we engage in good deeds, not for salvation, verse 5 already said we, we received that by mercy, but as we engage in good deeds, maybe those good deeds make a difference in the resurrection. Well, how would they make a difference? We're all going to be resurrected. Well, what if there are varying degrees of reward? What if the good deeds we engage in now make a difference in the reward that we receive on top of eternal life in the resurrection? What if here's here's the really crazy part, right? First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41, Paul says not all bodies are the same kinds of bodies. They have different glories. The sun has a different glory than the moon, than the stars. Um well He's talking about the resurrection there and our resurrection body. What if not all resurrection bodies are going to be the same? What if there are going to be different kinds of glorious resurrection bodies that we have the possibility of receiving, and those will be dished out based on the good deeds that we do now as Christ's representatives on earth? Just throwing it out there. I don't know. What do you think, Nick?
0: Well, it's it's interesting that you mention that because... Two Sundays ago, I actually preached about degrees of reward and punishment. Did you really? Um, Yeah. You still have a job? How's that? You still have a job? Believe it or not. (laughs) And uh, uh, one of the texts that I used was 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 13 through 15, where he's talking about how our works are going to be manifest on the day, that final day, he says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so I think I think this is something... When's the last time you heard a sermon on degrees of reward and punishment, or even a Bible class on that subject? Oh, something yeah. we don't talk about um, at all, really. And yet, I think it's a biblical thing, just as you're talking about here why it's so important that we devote ourselves to good works, why it's so important that we as Holy Spirit indwelt people who've been rebirthed and renewed for good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, why it's so important that we get after doing that and that we are excellent in all that we do, why we are profitable for people and for ourselves and everything that Paul's talking about here in regards to good works um, such a vital thing that I think we're we're missing that essential component in our Christian walk these days.
1: Yeah, I I would think that would be uh, quite the incentive. You get more reward the better you're at at Good Works. You get a better resurrection body the better you are at Good Works. I mean, we're all going to be happy just to be there and to be saved, no doubt. But, yeah, maybe we should uh, explore this more, do some more episodes on it.
0: But in the meantime, verse 10, <laughs>
1: this is a question I get sometimes.
0: Um, Paul says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, Is Paul does Paul disagree with Jesus in the matter of church discipline? Jesus, he seems to teach a, a three-stage process or format for discipline, go individually, then take two or three witnesses, and then take it to the church. Paul only has two stages. Um
1: Does he disagree with Jesus? Uh, Nick, I think what you're uh, connecting there is Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, where Jesus talks about if your brother sins against you, you have something against your brother, you try to win him over uh, first in private, and then if he doesn't repent, bring another witness or two. If he doesn't repent, bring it to the church's attention. So like you said, we have a three-stage thing going on there, but in Titus 3... Paul has a two-stage thing. you got warning one, warning two, and then you're out. So what's the uh, harmonizing solution? Uh, I came up with two possibles. First, Paul's referring to that third stage of Matthew 18. Uh, so the first and second warning occurs during that third stage, the, when you bring it to the attention of the church, the whole church. Uh, another solution is uh, Matthew 18 might just be sort of a more disciplined uh rule in general that anybody can initiate in the body. And then Titus three brings in, here's what the leaders do. The, those in leadership, elders, evangelists, and whatnot, they perhaps do a first and second warning to accommodate more pressing or egregious sins that are affecting the whole body. So you have two different outlines for discipline for two different scenarios. I don't know. I, I kinda like my first possibility better. What do you think, Nick?
0: Well, as it pertains to the the second, I think um that maybe that's that's the, the idea that, you know Titus and those who are in leadership, the elders that he was going to appoint, they were kinda on the front lines of that reconciliation process and so they've been involved in steps one and two and and so yeah, you've you've done all that you can and so stage three is take it to the church and let the church beat the pathway to this brother or sister's doorstep and ask them when they're going to repent. Um, and so you've done, you've warned them once, you've warned them twice, don't have anything more to do with it because you've turned it over to the church. At least that's kind of what I was thinking as you were sure. as you were breaking this down. Well, Let na- the church try and, and bring about reconciliation and peace.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And um, unfortunately, even after those paths have been taken, people— still don't repent. And it says, uh, verse 11, such a man who doesn't is perverted in a sinning being self-condemned. So when Paul calls somebody self-condemned, is he implying a loss of salvation? I mean, this is serious business. What do you think, Nick?
0: What's interesting is it seems like this person is sinning and they know it. Um, He's warped, he's sinful. And so I think that when it And by the way, this is the only mention of self-condemnation in the New Testament, and even in the Septuagint, which I found interesting. All the Greek Bible, this is the only time this word is found. But when you've rejected the correction of others, it seems like you've participated in your own judgment. And when you persist in rebellion, when you persist in your sin, even after the pleadings of those in leadership and those in the church— They've urged you to do otherwise. Um, you're without excuse, and so I think, yeah, self-condemned. You kind of know
1: where you stand on this. Um, does that make sense? I think so. And um, you know, I'm just thinking. Uh, I'm thinking about our Jimmy Hinton interview still. I can't can't get it out of my mind. So I can see how people who maybe are hurt and victims of of wolves in the church how people don't know what happened to them and they sort of look like they're leaving the faith and they're straying and they won't take correction and um but you just don't know what's happened to them uh man i i wish i wish that we knew who who that was you know who's been hurt so that we can be more gentle with them i think in this context um paul is is telling titus that he needs to deal with those that are of the circumcision. Uh, I think that's got to be brought brought into the interpretation here at the end. Um, I don't know. Um, It does say in Acts chapter 13, verse 46, Paul says to unbelieving Jews, uh, we're going to go to the Gentiles since you repudiate the gospel and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So, I don't know. Maybe Paul's not even saying that this implies a loss of salvation. Maybe Paul is saying that these are the... These are the wolves he's talking to. Maybe these are the circumcision, the, the pseudo-Christians that we talked about in chapter 1. Maybe these are these guys who were never really saved in the first place because they weren't true Christians. They were just in there to to cause factions and divisions. That, I don't know. Nick, any thoughts on that?
0: No, I think we've, uh, we've made our way to the final bit here. Okay. And that's um, verse 14. Although I will say, good connection to the Acts 13 text, by the way. That was a good one. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. How how do we learn to engage in good works? And are those good works or good deeds the same as bearing fruit?
1: Well, Nick, um, in this context, I think he says the learning happens when the action happens. In other words. We get opportunities, I think, if we're looking for them, for good deeds to be done. And when we do those good deeds, that in and of itself becomes a learning of theology by on-the-job training. In other words, when you do these things, man, they're tangible. They're visible. They're recognizable. It's not just an intellectual understanding, a philosophical standpoint, a systematic theology. That theology becomes real and a part of your life and who you are and what you do and so i would say at for for the at least the bare minimum in this verse bearing good fruit and good deeds are maybe two sides of the same coin and that again just brings another incentive in there to do those good deeds don't let those opportunities pass you by i don't know nick what do you think
0: no i think that's i think that's right on the money i was thinking about one of the things that jesus regularly said to people was follow me and that was kind of how he taught and instructed was by just walking around. And so when it comes to learning uh, to do good works, learning to devote yourselves and engage in good works, we join in that procession of followers um, that reaches all the way back to when Jesus walked the planet. And we, we learn from his example um, he's left us an example we might follow in his steps, as Peter says in first peter two so I, I think that is part of this as well as is, is we join in that procession of those who have um, walked a well trodden path that jesus he blazed the trail for and uh and so we we engage in that example. Good works is a a key um a key theme throughout Titus it showed up in chapter 1 verse 16 also in chapter 2 verse 7 verse 14 it's shown up here four different times verse 1 5 8 and 14 here so this is a key phrase a key uh, emphasis in the book of Titus that we would do well to continue to take a look at in our own personal lives so um, but that's gonna do it for this episode I think unless you had any more to add Alex what's our next book Nick Well, um, we're going to another three-chapter book of the Bible, of the New Testament, and I believe it's going to be 2 Thessalonians. Ooh. Now that talks about the man of
1: lawlessness.
0: Oh, man, there's all kinds of stuff. (laughs) Chapter 1 talks about um, hell. Chapter 2, man of lawlessness. Chapter 3 is going to talk about working, and if you don't work... Paul has some pretty strong words there, but we'll dig
1: into that when we get there. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I think we're going to start a new segment in that book, too, called The Lightning Round. So that'll be... Lightning Round. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll uh, throw in a series of maybe answers, uh, questions and answers that are just quick back and forth. So we're going to try it out, see how that goes. I'm looking forward to it. This is fun. I like Titus.
0: Yeah, in the meantime, this has been another episode of Swordplay.